Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hello and welcome to our Thirsty Podcast. My name is Jeremy Lightnin. I'm here with Zodiac. And our special guest today is Sergeant Hendricks. Luke Hendricks, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Uh, how do you and uh, Zodiac Debunker know each other? Well, actually, um, Pastor Zarling was uh, my first, uh, my confirmation pastor. And so he confirmed me. I was part of his first class. But we actually uh, met in Georgia when he was bickering. And we went to a district summer camp down in Georgia. And he was vicar dude there. So then he went back for his last year of seminary. And then we moved to Fort Knox. And we called the pastor from the seminary. And it happened to be Michael Zarling. I'm like, Zarling. Is that Vicar Dude? Yep. Thanks, and, Luke. And Vicar Dude is, was that like a t-shirt you were wearing or what was it? It's just, just a title, uh, just a title because I was the Vicar, you know, so, you know, they stick the Vicar with all the teens. And so the teens uh, had the Vicar and the Vicar's wife go down and at the youth rally in Georgia that year. And it would have been like 93, it. 94. And so the dude was a was the thing we called people that we liked. We should we should make that into a t-shirt maybe. Yeah. Yeah, you can write that on our, our thirsty t-shirts that we're gonna have made. Uh so so Luke, what was it like growing up at Fort Knox and elsewhere in the military? Because you've been all over the place as far as the military. But what was it like first of all as a kid growing up in that kind of military family? So growing up in a military family, um, it was really centered around the moves. And actually, we didn't move as much as some people in the military. I recently found out that like officers and so then their families tend to move a little bit more often than enlisted. But um, but a fun fact of my life because of moving and not all entirely due to the army, but mostly is that I've only celebrated four consecutive birthdays in the same house once in my entire life. Um so the first move from Minnesota to Georgia, that was the first move out of state, was hard. But after a couple of years, I came to really appreciate Georgia and kind of adopted it as my place. I wasn't born in the South. I just got there as fast as I could. Um, that made the move to Fort Knox hard, though not as hard as a move from Minnesota. And when I moved from Fort Knox back to Georgia in a slightly different area was exciting. It also came at a great place developmentally since I had my awkward middle school years at Fort Knox. And it got me to introduce myself with a fresh slate to a new high school. So that kind of worked out. Um, Fort Knox was unique. It was the only time I ever lived on a military installation. And I really enjoyed being fully immersed in the military life. Every kid in school was an army brat. Every house had a service member. And every day contained the rhythm of the military lifestyle, complete with bugle calls to mark the time. But for me, growing up in the military, the great constant moving around was the church. Um, we had established churches in Minnesota. When we first moved to Georgia, the nearest church was quite a long drive. And it wasn't too long before we found other members who lived in the same community making the same drive, and it helped to start a mission in Sharpsburg, Georgia in 1993. This was when attending church for my parents, and thus for me, really became a weekly habit. I remember the Red Christian Worship was published that year and setting up chairs in a school gymnasium. Um, when we moved to Fort Knox, though, my father was able to take the experience of setting up a new mission and getting that synodical support and calling that pastor there into calling a new pastor 
to to fill the satellite group that was meeting in Radcliffe, Kentucky, outside of Fort Knox. The satellite group would listen to the service at Hope in Louisville, Kentucky, by a speakerphone. It wasn't long after we joined that the small group was able to call their first pastor from the seminary, who was a recent graduate, as I said, I, I met, um, Pastor Zarling. Yeah. One of the and, things... Well, hey, with, oh, that, with that, Luke, is... Uh, so, Jeremy, when we talked last podcast about call day and, you know, with Pastor Day, with the, with the vicars and so forth. But here's the thing with my call day and being called down to Radcliffe is uh, Luke mentioned that the services were being held. So they had a congregation that had already kind of formed a core group and they had met first in like people's homes and then they went to a bank and then they worshiped in a on a storefront where they uh, did hair as a hair salon during the week, you could still smell the hairspray on the weekend. And then they rented out the uh, storefront next to the pawn shop. And they were on a Wells connection video and they were talking about how they had, it was like a satellite of hope in Louisville that the people in Radcliffe and that storefront, they would call up on the phone a landline up to Hope Louisville, and then they would plug it into their sound system, and then they would worship down in Kentucky or in Radcliffe an hour away via the phone. And so on call day, because that uh, Wells connection had come out just the month prior, so people knew about it. And then my classmates, when they heard Radcliffe, Kentucky, they said, oh, Zarling, he's going to replace the phones. So that was. So that what year was that? That would have been 96, 94. Yeah, 94, 90, yeah, 95, 95 or 96, yeah. I don't know. I'm old. I don't remember the years like that. 94 would be where I got married, so 96 would be yeah, the year. That seems right, 96, yeah. yeah. Well, so what, uh, Pastor Zarling, I can tell you with confidence that uh, you are definitely an improvement from phones. Thank you. Yeah, and, and then with that, too, I know, Luke, you've moved moved all over the place, too, and I know you had a great desire to become a pastor. I knew that already in confirmation class, and that didn't work out for you, and yet I was reminded uh, in talking with a pastor last night who knew you that I think when you were in North Carolina and that church was vacant, you were emailing me and other pastors to get our sermon so that you could, as a layman, could preach, right? Yeah, well, lead services, not preach, lead services and then read a sermon because, right. of course, you know, we have that high view of the call, um, and I certainly do. Um, so I don't want to pretend or play pastor, but um, getting a chance to share the gospel with God's people is a, is a huge privilege and was an honor to do that during that vacancy. And so, yeah, I still desire um, the office of an overseer. And if I, when I retire from the army, I do plan to see if I can't get the prerequisites to look at going to seminary. Awesome. Jeremy, you got a question? Uh, no, no, I guess not. I, okay. uh, I just don't want to keep, I, I don't want to just uh, hog all the questions with Luke. No, I, I think, uh, if you've got a plan of attack, then, uh, okay. keep at it. So, so Luke, right now you're in the Army National Guard and your position is a liaison supporting guardsmen in basic combat training. So tell us about that position. 
Yeah, so my mission is to support keeping quality Army National Guard trainees through a successful completion of their initial active duty training. This would be that basic combat training and their uh, first schooling for their specific job. We call it Advanced Individual Training or AIT in the Army. And so one of the things that I do is I counsel and I mentor and I try to encourage them, uh, especially those who are struggling with basic. And the real main point is to kind of avoid losing too many future Army National Guard soldiers, which helps those states and territories with the National Guard um, keep their strength, keep their end strength, since it takes so much effort to recruit somebody, get them qualified and ship them on to training that and about $80,000 out of the state's budget for that once they ship, that it's kind of a loss when they don't make it through basic in the IT. Okay. And one of the things that you do as a layman, but also as a military person, uh, you also serve on a different number of committees in the Wisconsin Synod. Uh, so we want to make sure that our listeners, if you've got any military family, friends, and so forth, Wells people, uh, that you, uh, you, know, you go online and you give the Wells the name. So I'm going to give you some websites to go to, wells.net backslash refer, so wells.net backslash refer, or and then also wells.net backslash military. So wells.net backslash military. So Luke, why are those websites so important for our young men and women in the military? So when you decide to go off and serve our nation, um, you are placed in a environment that is not always favorable to your Christian walk. Not to mention, you also get kind of separated from the church. It's much harder for our members to access their church, particularly when they're in basic AIT and when they're deployed, um, for the main reason that our church doesn't go alongside them in the military chaplaincy. As actually my MOS or my job in the Army when I'm not a National Guard liaison, my train job is a religious affairs specialist, what used to be called a chaplain assistant. And one of the mission there is to protect the free exercise of religion for all soldiers, family members, and authorized civilians. And the chaplains, they do a lot of the performance, right? So they are endor endorsed and ministerially trained. They're ordained ministers of their church body, and therefore they are able to represent their church body in the military. And so they don't have to do anything that goes against their church body's teachings, and they really support their own members, but they also support all military members in ensuring their free exercise, just like in concert with their religious affairs specialists. So with the Wells not having chaplains, it makes it a little bit harder for our members when we are separated from our community, like in basic AIT or when we get deployed, um, because then we have to kind of take care of our own religious support. And so knowing, having the Wells, the Senate, know who those members are and where they are, particularly when they're in basic and when they're deployed, really helps our Senate be able to allocate resources and allocate those civilian pastors, the military contact pastors, and also our national civilian chaplain and our European uh, civilian chaplain, know who the members are in those areas. And again, it's, it's um, when our, mil when our pastors ser serve our military members, it's not to proselytize or try to 
you know, um, get people to join. It's really just to take care of our own members and make sure our own members have the religious support that they need. Because let's be honest, um, a spiritually fit soldier is a lethal soldier. And um, so it helps to be able to ensure our own members' spiritual fitness by ensuring they have access to the gospel and word and sacrament. And for our listeners now, Luke's the second one of out of 13 episodes already, two of uh, our Wells people that I know that are in the military. We've got a couple of other lay people lined up and as future guests of different military services and so forth. So you can kind of see that this is important to Jeremy and myself. Uh, I served as a military contact pastor, what Luke is talking about, for eight years uh, at Fort Knox. And I was telling our pastor circuit study the other day in our uh, in our group that back then being a wet behind the ears pastor no clue how to even be a pastor and I didn't realize what I needed to do as a military contact pastor now I would but all I did is I just showed up and was the pastor but what Luke is talking about that since we don't have any Wells chaplains because of fellowship reasons we need to have uh, our, we have civilian chaplains that are uh, overseas or here at home. And so, yeah, it's so important for our Wells people uh, to go online and give those names to our people, uh, our military contacts, so that we can serve our men and women with means of grace ministries. And another area to go to is the Lutheran Military Support Group. Uh, but as we're talking about, you know, all of this religion, this religion, both in the military and at home. So, Jeremy, let's get into the gospel lesson because this Sunday we're going to be talking about the theme is human rejection is crushed by divine exaltation. Uh, can you think of examples, and I think Luke can too, of uh, where experts that you've dealt with were wrong, whether it's just secular or religious experts? Because Jesus is going to be dealing with the religious experts and they're totally wrong and and he squashes them with the parable but can you think of maybe religious experts uh, you've you've dealt no, with well thankfully uh, god has directed things so that today at uh, shoreland lutheran high school uh, there were uh, special presentations on the dangers of vaping um, and so the uh, presenter included some slides of uh, ads like a uh, uh, magazine or billboard ads from the fifties or sixties uh, of uh, where it's saying, you know, doc, the doctors surveyed have said that uh, they recommend this cigarette or uh, <laughs> dentists say that this is the best one for your gums or whatever with a filter. And uh, it, that it, when you see it now in this day and age and look back and, realize, yeah, that was pretty silly. And they were, they were kind of supposed to be the experts. Yeah. What about religious experts? Can you think of, you know, religious experts that, you know, they're just totally wrong? Oh, uh, well, how many other denominations are there? <laughs> there you go. Well, well, I was at Senate office today. Uh, we were finishing up two days of board for all missions meetings and we had the Wells president, Pastor Mark Schrader, talking to us. But as part of his discussion with us is he played uh, from the last Synod convention, Pastor Matt Harrison, the president of the Missouri Synod. And 
uh, President Harrison brought up that this is the first time that uh, a Missouri Synod uh, sitting president has ever addressed the Wisconsin Synod in convention. But he talked about how in 1961, when the Wells broke fellowship with the Missouri Synod, and this is a, this is a Missouri Synod president saying this, he said, the Wells was exactly right. You should have done that. That was exactly the right thing to do. And he went through a number of cases in the Missouri Synod, you know, religious experts, uh, religiously uh, conservative like we are in the Wisconsin Synod, and yet he he was documenting in his eight minutes of talking of times where the Missouri Synod was wrong on their doctrine of fellowship, and you know they they were paying a heavy price because of it. So there's there's a religious expert. So uh, just so I have this straight, I've yeah. heard that President Harrison has said that about the Missouri Synod to the Wells. I've, and I know that he spoke at Senate convention, but that, it, that those two are the same thing that he said that at the Senate convention. Yes. It wasn't just off the record unofficially. Nope. That was, that was on the record. You can watch, we were watching the video. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's refreshing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Luke, how about you in your situation in the military? Do you ever find, um, do you ever find any experts in the military being wrong? Uh, do I, um, you know, I don't want I, I I to get you tro- in, in trouble with the, with the army. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, doesn't, doesn't I'm, he I'm have a, years, a disclaimer, a disclaimer he's yes, supposed to make? Yes. I'm going to get to that, but I'm, I'm five years from active duty retirement and I'm still subject to the UCMJ. So I, I have to be careful in my response. And so let me preface this, that all this whole time, my opinions are my own <laughs> and they do not reflect the official views of the department of defense or the United States army or the army national guard. So. I mean, you say that absolutely true, but um, you know, one of the things that that I sometimes see is the way we understand how law works in the United States. So, only a judge really gets to interpret the application of any law to a specific set of circumstances or a situation. They're the only ones who's actually given the authority to do so. So. This is not to discount the precedent, past rulings made to similar circumstances, or the actual language of the law, or the persuasion of arguments made before the judge, but it does mean that all lawyers and experts in the law are really only ever giving their educated hypothesis of how a judge would rule in a given situation when they give you legal advice, hence why they call it a legal opinion. Unless they are discussing something where a judge has already made a decision on the exact set of circumstances, it really is only just an opinion. And like any opinion, the quality of it is directly proportional to the quality of the one making it. And in my work in the realm of military doctrine, you know, policy, regulations, and orders, I have found sometimes that readings of them seem to miss the clear meaning of the language or contradict other portions of the regulation or just seem to ignore the context of a particular of the particular portion and being discussed. And so I'll hear the quote unquote professional legal opinion. And sometimes I'm like, I don't think that's what the regulation says. Um, But you know, they don't ask me. So yes, sir. Keep on going. So Jeremy (laughs) with uh, Luke putting out a disclaimer, I'm wondering if you and I need a disclaimer, like every episode for the things we say don't necessarily reflect the views of water and life or the world high school. Yeah. Yeah. We're just two pastors just talking. You probably should. 
<laughs> you know, and the way legal opinions work, it's not that dissimilar from medicine and theology, too, you know. And in fact, a good theologian would be wise to discuss their opinion rather than to be arrogantly or presumption about the will of God or that they know. I mean, there are some things that are clear in Scripture, but other things when we discuss, you know. Yeah, that, that, is, a, that is a really good distinction to make. The, the between the, the what is God's will and what is in line with God's it could be it could be it's not against God's will but uh, it, it's in line with it but that doesn't mean it is specifically what God wants sure yeah uh, unless the scriptures have explicitly told me to do something I, I really don't quite know and it would mm-hmm. be presumption to say for sure no this is God's will in this case um, it might be in line with God's will but you know when we think about well, for instance, every three years when it came time to re-enlist, I really struggled with, am I doing this for a career and doing my 20 years in the military, or am I going to get out and try to go to seminary? And um, lots of good pastors said, hey, you know, both are good things. Both are good vocations of, from God, and, you know, one is not better than the other, and, you know, I don't have a clear word from God, and so I have to use my reason to the best of my ability, you know, of course, being a minister or servant to the word, but in those cases yeah yeah and i think last night here at water of life we extended a divine call for a pastor to be my associate and you know what you guys are talking about uh it was placing that call was in line with god's will but until that guy accepts the call we don't know what god's will specifically is of who that pastor will be uh jeremy you want to get into the gospel lesson yes This is Luke chapter 20, beginning with verse 9. Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, leased it to some tenant farmers, and went away on a journey for a long time. When it was the right time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect his share of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenant farmers beat the servant and sent him away empty-handed. The man went ahead and sent yet another servant but they also beat him, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. He then sent yet a third. They also wounded him and threw him out. The owner of the vineyard said, What should I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenant farmers saw him, they talked it over with one another. They said, This is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. They threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. So what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenant farmers and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, may it never be. But he looked at them and said, then what about this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush the one on whom it falls. That very hour, the chief priests and the experts in the law began looking for a way to lay hands on him because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. All right. So, Luke, uh, let's examine the characters and the different elements in Jesus' parable of the wicked tenants. So what's the vineyard? Who is the owner of the vineyard? I think the vineyard is the world, and the owner is clearly the God, specifically the Father. Yeah. So then, Jeremy, what is this parable teaching us about the tenants? Because in, in the way we set up this, 
about the experts. The experts are the tenants. So who are they? You might need to correct me because I, I would, my answer to the vineyard would have been something like God's uh, uh, gathering of believers or the church, uh, even though Jesus wouldn't have been, you know, he was still kind of working with Old Testament things right there, but it, should we be thinking the whole world? Well, that's, that's what I was working with of that the, that the vineyard was the world. Okay. Uh, and what was your question for me? Sorry. And then, and then who are the tenants? I mean, you can, you could make it narrow if the, well, that's, yeah, that's why I was kind of wondering if it, if I needed to widen my scope or not, because the, the tenants I would have thought were the, the builders of the, the, the stone, the builders rejected the builders of, of God's people are the religious leaders. They're supposed, they're supposed to be the experts like we were talking about before. And yet they reject the, 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 the savior. Okay. Yeah. I think, I think that's true. If we were going to make it specific that the vineyard could then be the promised land of Canaan. And then the tenants are specifically these Jews that are going to kill the prophets and you know they kill one then they kill another then they kill a third uh, and then eventually they are going to kill the son the father's son which is going to be jesus uh, but i think we can apply this then in a larger scope to the world and apply this to ourselves if jeremy you and i were were preaching on it so what is this parable teaching us about ourselves jeremy how do we treat the landlord like the tenants treated that landlord? How do we treat the Lord that way? Um, it it kind of makes me think of a pastor one time I heard who said that he didn't like to call the members of the church that he served, my people. That's kind of a habit that pastors have when they, they talk about the congregations they serve, they say my people. And I think there is a positive way to say it, that you have, they, they're your people in that you love them and you feel closeness to them. And I, I don't think that's a bad thing to say, but I do think he raised a good point when he said, I try not to call the members of uh, this church, my people, because I need to remember they're God's people. And they, he is, he's the one who bought them with his blood. He is the true, Jesus is the true pastor, shepherd of this church. Um, so I, I think, yeah, I think sometimes maybe uh, I don't know. Should I use the word territorial or possessive? Okay. Luke, you want to add anything to this about how do you think that we can be these wicked tenants? Well, I think anytime we don't want to be faithful to our calling, um, our calling to serve God and love our neighbor, um, which is what the chief priests and the teachers of the law were called to do. They were called to serve God and love their neighbor and give the people the true word, which was, a word of repentance and not a word of works righteousness. Um, and then also to point out the true Messiah who has come into the world. Um, so they were not being faithful to their calling as spiritual leaders in the church. Um, and I think we also regularly don't want to be faithful to our calling. We want to resist God's will to serve him and love our neighbor. Yeah. And what you were saying, Jeremy, about, you know, the pastor not wanting to call the people my people. I, I think even beyond that, I think so often we fall into the temptation of the tenants. That The tenants 
eventually believed that that vineyard was theirs. And we like to believe that this world is ours, our income that we've earned, that's ours, our children are ours and so forth. And they're really God's, he's loaning everything to us. And then like the tenants who didn't want to pay the, the rent back to the landlord, I think we cheat God, our landlord, because we don't want to always give to him. We don't want to give to him of our time. And we're too busy right now. Uh, we cheat our savior out of our worship that we try and fit him into the schedule as opposed to saying, you know, Sunday morning, Wednesday evening worship, my Bible study time, that comes first before anything else. Uh, we cheat God out of our talents because we don't work for him in the vineyard, like Luke was saying. Uh, and then even if we do give back to the Lord, we're always very hesitant, I think. We, we cheat him on our, the meager portions of our income that we re return back to the Lord in our offerings or our special gifts towards, say, Lutheran military support group or to uh, world missions or home missions or whatever. And in all these ways, we can be these wicked tenants. I, I thank you, uh, Sergeant Hendricks for mentioning that about the works righteousness, because I, I never really uh, put that, put this parable in that perspective, but uh, that was what the Pharisees and the priests and the, law teachers were doing was essentially um, teaching a theology of works righteousness. And th that's also, that does fit into Jesus' parable here, because if you think about the tenant farmers, what is it that they were doing? They were working and uh, they, they, they had to put in the, the sweat and the blood of, uh, and the tears of growing that vineyard. And uh, so then when it, it's easy with, with, the owner of the vineyard being out of their sight for them to think I'm the one who's working so much. Uh, this should really be my vineyard. Who cares about that guy that thinks uh, we owe him some kind of, uh, some kind of dues. So, yeah. So Jeremy, what does this parable teach us about God, about the landlord? Um, I, I'm going to go back to what we were saying. Was it last week about the, uh, crazy father, the, the prodigal father who was wasting his money by just lavishing it on this son that he knew was going to run away and then being so patient with the other son. Um, it teaches us about God that he does not have good logic. <laughs> because, and, and the reason I can say that is because uh, think of you were a landowner and you sent workers to go collect your dues uh, and they kept getting progressively more abusive every time that you sent them and even, even killing some of them. And then you say to yourself, well, maybe if I send my son to that, maybe then they'll respect him. That that's just not good logic. If you've been paying attention this whole time. Uh, and yet that's a great illustration of God's grace uh, that he, that he sends his son, even after he knew what they were going to uh, do to him. Well, yeah, so he always is calling us to repentance. Uh, he did that with Cain in the garden. He says, you know, even after he killed Abel, he's like, hey, where's your brother? He was just inviting mm. him to repent. And then again with even Judas, like, are you going to betray the son of man with a kiss? Think about what you're doing. Repent. And that's how God deals with us. He is always calling us 
to repentance and faithful in his call to continually do it. And um, as long as we have the time of grace, we can, you know, repent and receive his forgiveness and receive the things that he wants to give us his good gift. So I'm going to be preaching on this text this weekend. And uh, the theme of the sermon is a God of multiple chances, because it's a story about the perversity of the tenants, but it's even more so a story about the patience of God, because he's a God that gives a first chance, a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance, and then even more. But it's also a story where we have to know that God's patience can be exhausted when he keeps giving you all of those chances. It's like those parents, you know, I'm going to count to one or I'm going to count to three and then one, two, three. And then uh, they say, oh, all right, I'm going to give you another chance. You know, we think that those are really bad parents, don't we? Because the kids get really bad uh, because they're not disciplining right away. And yet, what do we say about our God? Is our God that awful at discipline? Well, maybe, uh, because what happens because we don't listen to them, uh, we don't listen to the third chance, and then we get spanked right away because he, he just keeps wanting to give us chances. But eventually, you know, in the story, we find out, yeah, his patience will run out, and then God treats the hard-hearted rebels severely. He, if he, he doesn't follow through, go ahead, Jeremy, and then Luke. If he doesn't, if he doesn't follow through on what he said he's going to do, then in, it seems odd, but that actually makes him both unloving and unjust. So I, I just say, think about how he gives them what they ask for. Um, you know, I don't want you, God. I don't want you in my life. I don't want to accept your son. Um, and eventually he's going to give them what they ask for and not be in their life. And that is a really scary thought. And may God keep me ever from that. So then, Luke, what does this parable teach us about Jesus Christ? Well, he's the one calling the world to repentance. He's the son that comes to, you know, return them. And what's funny is they, they're going to kill Christ because they want to steal the inheritance. But in reality, Christ actually offers what within repentance the father's forgiveness that he earned and he actually changes then the tenants into heirs giving them a shared ownership in the vineyard um great is the love of the father that he's lavished upon us in christ how, how do you want to answer that one jeremy what does this parable teach us about jesus no i think i think he summed it up pretty well jesus is the son that that gets killed uh and uh just imagine Jesus telling this parable to the very people that were going to do the killing, trying to make that point, uh, calling, calling them, like, like Luke was saying, calling them to repentance, uh, even as he's trying to do it through this story. And, uh, and, and that, that is a wonderful thought of, uh, that you, you actually get what it, it's kind of like going back to the garden of Eden, uh, Satan promising, oh, you'll be like gods uh, if you eat this fruit. And actually, they were already in God's image before they ate the fruit. They, he was offering something they already had. Uh, but then in Christ, uh, they, they, got, they, got, they got it back again. They got what they wanted. So then, Jeremy, the religious leaders here were experts. Uh, and 
so what does this teach us? What does this parable teach us about trusting the experts? But before you answer that one, I just wanted to bring us up too, is you mentioned that Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, calling them to repentance. What day on Holy Week is he talking to them about this? You know, this is, this is Tuesday of Holy Week, right? You know, this isn't just a year, you know, this isn't a year before he's died, he's killed on the cross. It's not two or three years in the beginning of his ministry. This is three days before he's crucified. And just, you know, for our listeners to put that in the context, you know, he's calling them to repentance of saying, you, you rejected the prophets, uh, these servants over and over again through hundreds of years of my father calling you to repentance, sending the, the servants into the vineyard of the promised land of Canaan and you killed them. And now you're going to kill the son. And three days later, that's what happens. So getting back to the question, Jeremy, you know, these religious leaders to whom Jesus is talking are the experts. So what does this parable teach us about trusting these so-called experts? Uh, I don't know. This is just off the top of my head. Uh, so I'm not going to be able to, I, I'm thinking this is Proverbs or I'm pretty sure there's Paul quotes it in first Corinthians uh, about catching the wise in their wisdom that uh, maybe it's one of the prophets that says that, but it's, th this is what God does uh, to the, to the humble. He shows himself humble and to the crafty, he shows himself crafty um, that, uh, that when you, start to think that you're smart and uh, you, you really get puffed up with your own expertise that uh, you get so full of it that you end up making a very obvious blunder. And uh, that's, that's really what we see here is that they, they think we know the law, we know, and I don't say the law is in opposite of the gospel. I mean, Torah, I mean like doc, a better word is doctrine for a lot of times what they're saying is we know we know doctrine so well uh, that uh, we're the we're the experts in in doctrine. And then God says, uh, "No, I can I can outwit you in this." And then the same kind of question, Luke. Except let's look at it with Jesus quoting the Old Testament about the cornerstone. What is he getting at there with both the cornerstone and the experts? So I, I think it's. It's interesting because, you know, they say, may it never be. Um, and then he quotes that. And it's like, you know, the death of the son or the planned killing of the son was kind of already in motion or, or real close to starting. And so, you know, that they're like, may it never be. But in reality, they weren't. They, they really wanted it. They wanted it still. Um, or it's still going to come true. And if you if you fight Jesus, if you resist him, um, then I think, yeah, you, you will come to that end of the cornerstone will crush you. Um, that's not what Christ desires. It's not what he wants. He wants to forgive and to restore and to um, all men to be, or all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. But um, there is, there is a law there and there is, you know, what's good is still good. And so um, doing bad things is still bad and there's consequences. Yeah, and I think here, too, with the experts, that 
Jesus is reminding us that when it comes to the judgment of him and his kingdom, there's only one opinion that counts. The Pharisees and the other religious leaders, they wanted their opinion to count. But it's God the Father. He had the final verdict on Christ and his work. And and he gives that verdict uh, just a few days later, like we said, in the death of his son, but more so the announcement of the verdict that he accepted the death of the son by rise, but by raising him from the dead. Uh, and, and I think uh, too, I remember this was before my time, even because it was King James type language, but pastors would say, thus saith the Lord, you know, in that way of saying, Hey, this is what God, God's word says, no matter what you think. Uh, Cause I remember a parent in confirmation class a couple of years ago, I had sent home a lesson. This was during COVID when we were sending home the, the recordings of our teaching of the catechism classes. And it happened to be on sixth commandment and it was dealing with uh, you know, marriage. And I talked about living together and homosexuality and so forth. And then I gave a synopsis to the parents saying, hey, these, this is the content of what I'm talking about in the lesson. And right away, one of the parents said, well, uh, you know, her, their eighth grader, you know, that the two of them as parents, they had had the children out of wedlock. They were still unmarried. They have another a number of their family members who are living together. Some are in straight relationships, others in homosexual relationships. She said, well, I think it should just be whatever you want it to be. And I replied right away, and I tried to be kind, but saying, you know, it really doesn't matter what you or I think. It's what's, what God says. Thus, I didn't say thus saith the Lord, but that was the key is, because uh, I did say it doesn't matter what you or I are, are thinking or feeling on this or anyone else. If this is what God says, then this is what we're going to go with. Uh, so did what you it, say, did you say, thus saith the Lord when you were vicar, dude? <laughs> I don't know. Luke, do you know? I, I never heard that. I never yeah, heard that. Probably not. <laughs> I, I didn't say a whole lot because I didn't know anything back then. Uh, but Jeremy, what are, why are the tenants responding this way? May this never be. What are they getting at that is, with that? Yeah, that's a, I think. Jesus' words were hitting home. That, that's a neat thing about communication is when you actually, you not only give it or receive it, but that you can actually see that it's been given and received accurately. And that's, that's kind of uh, what you see with that verse 16. Um, and, and then Jesus looks right at them. Uh, you know, Luke points that out. Uh, he looked at them. Uh, so, so you can tell things were firing on all cylinders. Everybody was speaking the same language. And uh, what, what struck home with them was that um, they were going to lose their holy land. And uh, they, they, they understood the meaning of the parable directly. And, uh, and then that's, you know, that's why they said, oh, no, we could never lose the holy land. We, uh, may it never be. And then Jesus looks at them and says, well, God predicted that this would happen. Uh, this is what's written. Uh, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Luke, you want to add anything to that? No, I mean, just, yeah. I mean, it's just that I'm calling them the repentance again, you know, saying don't, well, you know, 
don't reject me, but of course, knowing that they would. And, you know, Jeremy, I'm glad you brought up that looking at them. I hadn't thought about bringing that part out. And when you were saying that reminded me of, again, teaching catechism class the other day, and we're teaching on the sixth commandment. And so I was talking about uh, homosexuality and so forth. And uh, I was asking the students, so we know this is wrong. We know this is a sin. So does that mean if you have family members or friends who are gay, that you should stop being friends with them? And obviously they want to say yes. And I said, no, you have to call them to repentance. They're not going to listen to someone like me, but you, they love you. They respect you. And you being bold enough to tell them, I love you. And this is wrong. I'm trying to save you. That means something. And as I'm talking about this, one of the young ladies just hung her head and put her head down on the table. And I thought, ah, she's just kind of laughing at what we're talking about. And it was just, I thought that was, I was reading her body language and I read it wrong because a moment later she picked her head up and then she raised her hand. She never raised her hand. And she said, she asked, what about if you have a family member, like say a sibling that's trying to lead you to become gay. And I was just thinking, oh my goodness, you know, the Holy Spirit is really working on this young lady right now. And, and just that being able to look her in the eyes and share God's word with her. I thought it's just, that's what I thought of when you were talking about that, Jeremy, of that, that power of God's word and a look. Mm-hmm. Like uh, J- Jesus with, with Peter too. I, I always like to point out, you wouldn't look at somebody that you are angry with. Most often when people are angry, they can't stand to look at, at somebody that they're angry with, but Jesus turned and looked at Peter. Uh, yeah, there was a call to repentance in his look, but there was also love. And I'd, I'd like to think that's uh, also what Jesus did here as he was looking at them uh, because he, he cared and loved them enough, cared about and loved them enough to uh, call them to repentance. Um, and I've got an answer for this. So I, if, if neither of you uh, has this, then I, I hopefully won't be throwing you off kilter. But verse 18 uh, could be a tough one to untangle uh, if you're just reading this for the first time. And Jesus is talking about a stone and so forth. And uh, how would you explain the the part about being broken to pieces versus being crushed. Do you want to go first, Luke? Well, I mean, this is a, uh, this is me putting things together, not because I, I, I know for sure that this is the right answer, but I think that the uh, broken to pieces is what the law does to lead us to repentance, right? And so there's contrition, there's contrition, and that's the breaking to pieces but um, of course, repentance is always two parts. It's contrition and also the you turn. You turn away from your sin, but you turn towards something, and that's to Christ in faith. And so the contrition and the faith is repentance. And so I, I, I think that's the broken to pieces versus being crushed, which would be the fate of the unbeliever when they, at, at judgment day, are then crushed by their own deeds, um, trying to rail against the stone. So, so Jeremy, I, I don't know what your thoughts are, but I think when Luke retires from the military in five years, uh, we should send him on to the seminary to become a pastor. Sure. 
because Luke, that's what I was going to say too, is that uh, I think we talk oftentimes that our lives are broken. Our marriage is broken. Our uh, emotional state is broken. Our family relationships are broken, whatever it is. And we need to be broken by God's law. And I think that's what Jesus is talking here about the cornerstone, uh, tripping over it and then being, but we have to realize how broken we are. I saw a video today at the, at our board for all missions meetings. Uh, it'll come out in September uh, for all of the wells to watch. And it's, it's a really well done video of, uh, a lady, I'm going to guess, say 30s or 40s, but she talked about how uh, as a 30 or 40-year-old, she came to a mission church, uh, of one of her Wells Mission Churches, and it was the very first time that she'd ever sat in a church in her life. And the very first time she ever sat down to pray, she had no idea how to pray. And she talked about her depression, and her. she was very open about her alcoholism and so forth, and yet... Uh, they, they videotaped her being baptized as an adult and she realized her brokenness. She knew something was broken and that's why she took the invitation to come to the church. But then when she heard God's word, then she realized that, you know, what that brokenness was, it was her sin. And then which led her to repeat to repenting. So Christ could put her back together again, as opposed to being crushed, which is, you know, damnation, allowing God's word just to uh, have its way with you. What is your answer, Jeremy? Yeah, it was, it was pretty much along those lines. It's everybody gets broken, uh, believers and unbelievers. Uh, well, actually let me back that up. Um, Believers get broken because a broken and contrite heart God will not despise. Um, and, and it's Jesus himself. That's the interesting thing in verse 18. It's, it's Jesus himself who does the breaking that he, he looks so much unlike a savior. He's, he's just a normal guy. Uh, his church today looks so uh, unappealing, unattractive. Uh, it, it's bigoted or backwards minded or whatever else bad things. It's small, it's weak, uh, whatever else bad things you want to say. It, it looks of offensive in the sense that people are repulsed by it. And, and Jesus says, that's okay. I, I know that I look like just an ordinary human. And I know that my church looks like uh, just a, a miserable little flock. Uh, everybody's going to be be broke, you're going to trip on this and be broken to pieces. But if you realize, and, and I think that's what we're dealing with here with uh, experts in the law, if you realize I'm the savior and you know that and, and you recognize the implications that the Holy Land will be taken away from you or that uh, you're rejecting the savior of the world if you disbelieve in me, uh, you know that and you still trip on me well, then that's going to be the rock that, that crushes you eternally um, with, with God's punishment. And, and that reminds me of a story years ago, a young lady in the church, uh, she had a mental breakdown and was at, uh, in a hospital for, uh, in a psych unit. And her family was there. I came in as the pastor 
And then she asked to just meet with me privately in her room. And so I did. And she started crying. She said, Pastor, I'm such a screw up. Everyone else at church, they've got their lives all together. And here I'm just a mess up. And I, I laughed. And I said, oh, sweetheart, you have no idea how screwed up the people at our church are. And, and I wasn't trying to make her feel better because everyone else is screwed up, but I was trying to make her feel better because, yeah, we are all screwed up. And I told her the, the problem is that uh, so many of us, we come to church, we're broken, we're messed up, we've screwed up so badly, but we don't talk to other people about it. We put on a good face when people ask us, how are you doing? Fantastic. I'm great. I'm good. And we just cover up that brokenness and how messed up our lives really are. And But what we're talking about here is we need to be able to tell God how messed up we are, how broken we are, so he can clean up the mess, so he can put us back together again. Like you said, Jeremy, otherwise, we're just going to keep on going this way. And now Jesus falls, you know, the, the law, the cornerstone, it falls on us and breaks us instead of... Uh, showing us our brokenness so Christ can put us back together again. The, you know, how bad a boy are you, right? <laughs> the healthy don't need a doctor. And mm-hmm. so if, if, and we're, we, we fail, I mean, I fail at this. I don't realize how terrible my sins really are because if I really did, then I would realize how great of a savior we have. Um, and, and so it's, it's this, well, Luther said, right. The, when Christ says to repent, he says he wills that the daily life be one of repentance. Luther says it in our baptism, right? That our old Adam should be daily drowned by contrition and daily rise again um, to walk in newness of life. So that way we may give God glory in doing good things and loving our neighbor and, and, and doing that. But yeah, we got to realize how, how bad we are to know how good God is and how good Christ is. Well, let's, let's finish up with this question then. I want to direct this one to you, Luke, with the Lutheran Military Support Group. And we're talking about messed up. How does the Lutheran Military Support Group in the Wisconsin Senate help our men and women and young or old that, you know, they realize that they are messed up and maybe because they see some of these horrors of war? that they, they're even more messed up. How, does that, how important is that Lutheran military support group and what is its ministry and its goals? Well, you know, I, I love the Lutheran military support group. I think it was, a, it was very long in coming and I'm so glad that it exists and is able to um, support the church in many different ways. One is just fundraising and then and, and supporting programs that help. But um, I and I don't want to put them down in this, so please don't misunderstand me, especially if my fellow directors hear me. But um, yeah, because I am going to share this with them, you know. <laughs> but <laughs> I, it, it's not Lutheran Military Support Group. Lutheran Military Support Group is, is merely an instrument that is being used. It, it's the gospel. It's the gospel. Um, we we use this analogy in in the military circles about how um, people are sheep. And there are bad people out there who are wolves and they want to harm the sheep. And then there are people who look like the wolves, but they do not harm the sheep. What they do is they stand between the wolves and the sheep, call them sheep dogs. And that there are people in our world who have the calling to act like the wolves, 
but only use their teeth against those who would do violence against the sheep, against the people. Um, and because they have that calling, they have to do things that, you know, Luther, Luther would say, it's like a doctor cutting off a limb, right? It, 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 it doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem like it's a good thing. But in reality, God has called them to that when they act in their vocation, because they're not doing it on their own, right? I didn't go out and decide to deploy myself to Iraq to, um, you know, support peace and try to uh, create a peace, peaceful situation there. I was sent by my government, right? And so therefore, as a soldier, my calling is to follow the orders of the government. And the government will have to answer to God for good wars and bad wars. Um, but my calling is to merely act in my vocation as a soldier. Um, and so it's hard. It's hard work. And if we forget the gospel, and if we neglect the gospel and don't try to bring that to those people who are hurting, um, there's no other cure. There's no other cure. Um, I've heard a, a guy speak about, you know, purification ceremonies in warrior cultures and how it was important that they would separate the warriors after they sent them to war to purify them before they could rejoin the community. And of course, we have the one side that the vocation of a soldier is not unholy. It's not a sinful vocation. But on the other side, if you feel guilty, right, if you feel guilty, there's still the same cure for your guilt, whether it's real guilt that you should feel guilty for or imagined guilt. The cure is the same. And it's Christ. It's the gospel. And I like we have a great purification ceremony. It's called holy absolution. And so that's what our church really needs to do. It needs to seek out, because we have the gospel, needs to seek out those who are hurting and make sure they not only hear the gospel, but they, they hear it in such a way that, it, that they believe it. Um, because that, that's all God calls us to do is, this is good news. Believe it. Awesome. Hey, Jeremy, you got anything else to add? Uh, that's uh, that's a great way to wrap it up. I'm going to leave it at that. All right. Well, thanks, Luke. So this is Pastor Zarling with Sergeant Luke Hendricks and Pastor Lightning as a Feather. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life. 